In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science. And the subject of the experiment is himself. Hello and welcome to the Shadow Work Library. I'm Jessica DePotsy, and on today's show, I'm joined by the remarkable, the mysterious Anderson Todd. He's a psychotherapist practicing out of Toronto. He's the Assistant Director of Consciousness and Wisdom Studies, also out of the University of Toronto. He's a researcher, and the reason why we're talking to him today is because he's also a connoisseur of altered states of consciousness. And so that right there is what we're diving into. This podcast covers probably everything you'd want to know about how altered states can help us in the process of transformation and getting unstuck. Anderson has studied the depths of psychedelics and dreams through his depth psychological lens, and he explains how it works in a way that just made so much sense. And if you know anything about trying to explain a psychedelic um, experience, an ethnogenic experience, deep meditation, anything big and transformational, explaining it in a way that makes sense is almost impossible. So this was really exciting. So for any of you who want to see if exploring your altered states is right for you at this time, or if you're already a psychonaut and simply want to know what's going on in your psyche when you're integrating it, this is going to be a great show for you. And just a quick disclaimer, please use your own discernment when exploring out of your zone of expertise when it comes to ethnogens. If you're called to do it, listen to your intuition. If you sense it's not the right time, listen to your intuition. When you're vetting out a shaman, a facilitator, absolutely use your intuition and be brave enough to make decisions that are for your own good. I personally really enjoy the process of transformation, including all of those thorns and jagged edges. Uh, I don't know, it's just something about me. I really love it. And for 2022, I'm continuing on my path of transformation as I will be, I'm sure, for the rest of my life. I have a specific way I'm planning to do that. And it allows for, with this plan, enough adaptability to keep life fluid and fun and agile. And if you want to do that with me and my friends, you can join our free Transformation Collective community at transformationcollective.org. It's a place where we're just sharing what we do and whoever resonates can come along on the trip as well. And uh, there's a monthly membership for a deeper dive if you're interested in that. So all that to say, I hope you enjoy the show. And if you'd like to learn more about the Transformation Collective, definitely check it out. It's uh, for the span of 2022, but you can join at any time at transformationcollective.org. All right, enjoy the show. So Anderson Todd, welcome to the show. Hi Jessica, thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, nice to to be on, and uh, certainly it's a set of subjects that I'm really really into. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm I'm going to spare everyone your long list of other things that you do because I feel like that'll just be integrated into this whole exploration of altered states and shadow work from your perspective. So I was feeling like the best place to start with this would be a frame up of a common problem. Um, so as we grow and evolve as humans, one of the blocks to our own transformation, our own awakening or healing, or however we want to look at this, can be, can be relying too heavily on the ordinary mind or our intellect. You know, we can get stuck in over-processing, this cyclical thinking to the point of mental exhaustion, which I am guilty of, 
um, overanalyzing things, making things really complicated in our minds. And uh, our overactive minds getting us to this place of our problems self-perpetuating. So first off, how do you feel about that problem to kick this off? Do you agree that that's a common dilemma? Yeah, I mean, overcomplication is in some sense, a, um, that's a that's a distinct problem that's always going to be a moving target, right? Because the level of whatever, the level of complexity you're bringing to bear is really dependent on what you're dealing with. But in terms of the like limitations of of consciousness, yeah, I mean, this is a, a really perennial problem and something that psychotherapy, in fact, very much emerges from. All of the early psychodynamic theorists, Freud and, and Jung, and I'm a, a neo-Jungian, um, all sort of grapple with this, that uh, if you sort of stick with the idea that your uh, conscious mind, your ego, as they would put it, is the boss of everything, is the boss of the meal, is the boss of the show, is the boss of your life, uh, you know, can determine everything and ought to be able to determine everything and ought to be able to control everything, you're going to have a lot of problems. Uh, and those problems are, of course, you know, the more you concentrate on insisting that your consciousness is, you know, in charge of the show um, and the only game in town, the more often it's going to be like getting punched in the dark. Mm. <laughs> so the more you can acknowledge things that are outside of that, you know, in a sense, the it's not ever that you quite get, you know, penetrating night vision into these sort of less conscious areas per se, but you do get a, a better sense of the dynamics and a better sense of what to expect and a shift in your relationship towards those things. So you, you stop getting punched in the dark. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's great. Uh, one of the things that came up for me as you were saying that was even as I say altered states or ordinary states or non-ordinary modes of consciousness, I mean, what is ordinary and what is normal? Can we start with that? <laughs> yeah, we can. Um, so the answer is, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. Um, no. You know, my, my personal take on this, there are a lot of different accounts of what constitutes regular consciousness and what constitutes an altered state of consciousness. It's a term that still gets thrown around, mostly as a matter of kind of convention. Really, realistically, what we think of as normal consciousness isn't any one thing anyway. It's a whole state of things. So if you think about, you know, going through your day, you're going to have various levels of attention, various levels of acuity. You're going to have, uh, you know, your emotional processing impinging on you in various ways. Sometimes you'll be really dialed in. Sometimes you'll be kind of drifted out and dissociated. So your, your regular state is fluctuating all through the day anyway. It is by no means some kind of, you know, singular point. Um, Outside of that, there's a set of states that we all tend to experience pretty regularly, like uh, dreamless sleep, um, although it seems like maybe there is, in fact, a form of dream associated with that, but that's a, a whole separate story. Um, uh, dreaming sleep, right? REM sleep. So there are these other states that we encounter, um, and we encounter them with some regularity. We indeed expect to, right? We're not necessarily surprised when we wake up and have a dream, but having a dream is a very different state of consciousness and processing than the one that we experience waking. Then there are the things that we experience uncommonly uh, and which bend our processing in various ways that are clearly remarkable and sometimes highly unpleasant, sometimes highly pleasant. So having a fever, if you've ever had right, a fever dream, you've sort of had your consciousness, you know, uh, tighten in and go on, you know, an apocalyptic loop. A lot of the time in a fever dream, it sort of plays to the same short stuttering sequence of horror uh, or whatever, uh, but equally something like falling in love. Um, which is an extremely powerful altered state. Um, you know, it keeps us awake. It bends our thoughts in a particular direction. It makes us feel physically lighter and it makes the world seem physically brighter. These are 
are sort of testable things. So all of these are sort of fluctuations in our system that we um, don't exactly take for granted. People obviously spend a lot of time doing things like chasing love. Um, but, mm. um, you know, they're part of sort of the regular palette of states that we have come to expect. Outside of that are states that are considerably harder to reach intentionally or extremely rare uh, for the system to just naturally and spontaneously go into. And that's where we start getting into the kinds of altered states that people are talking about when they're discussing things like classical psychedelics or ayahuasca um, or um, particularly deep states of uh, meditation and trance um, or this sort of thing, right? Things that are sort of conventionally psychedelic, uh, mind-opening, mind-bending, hallucinatory. And that stuff tends to be fairly far outside people's regular everyday experience. But the fact is, it's actually all a continuum. It's not that there's really such a thing as this is regular consciousness mm. and this is the abnormal stuff. It's all kind of related in a continuum. And indeed, if there weren't kind of continuous relations between altered states of consciousness, so-called, and regular consciousness, we wouldn't have any standard or framework to compare them. They're actually more similar than we typically tend to admit. So does mm -hmm. that does that answer without getting too deep in the weeds? Yeah. And, you know, on my exploration of... I don't know, just life. I'm trying to figure out how to use words more intentionally. And so when I come across things like non-ordered ordinary modes of consciousness, I'm just feeling like that's not quite it. Altered state seems pretty close. What would be the term that let's use from here on out that feels most accurate? So so I just use altered states for conventional shorthand, but I, I teach a whole half course at this on the University of Toronto. And somewhere around week three of the course this year, one of my students, you know, came into office hours and said, hey, you know, I've noticed this and this in your particular argument. And I said, yeah. And he said, <laughs> well, wouldn't that mean then that there's really no such thing as an altered state in this formulation? And I'm like, yeah. Uh -huh. That's right. But I can't start there. Uh, right. Like it's, it's just not how the conversation works in this field. So um, but altered states is fine. I think most people know what we're talking about if we say that. So that's a it's a good place to to start. But altered state and we mean non-ordinary state. Big equals sign. Mm -hmm. OK, great. I like that. Yeah, I had that moment in the bathtub the other day. Even I was talking to my friend, Dr. Danielle, who's a, a neo Jungian as well. And mm -hmm. she was like, you know, kind of feeling like I don't know what's real anymore. <laughs> Like, yeah, I get that. But we can't really podcast on that just yet. <laughs> uh, no, which for sure we can. Uh, I feel like it's all been, things have been getting progressively more seemingly virtual. I, I peg it to about 2016. Uh, the mm -hmm. thing that I typically say here is like, David Bowie, like, come back and save us. Um, uh, but things have been obviously, you know, uh, Terrence McKenna would have said something like, you know, the novelty factor is increasing. But as far as I can tell, it's just this gradual weirdening. The tipping point for uh. me was when Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart were doing a show together. And I thought, this isn't happening. This isn't. <laughs> yeah. Nice, yeah. What are those? Nice try. One yeah. of those moments where it's like, who is somebody fucking with us? <laughs> like, yeah. at what point are we all going to be like, this is enough? I want to know. I have, I have questions and I need answers. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess let's bring it back. <laughs> um, so then, altered states, how can they help us get out of this overactive mind or help with transformation? So you had said uh, one of the common ways of operating with our material is to feel like our ego is the boss. Well, then who is the boss or who are the other players that are coming out to play as we access? You can pick an altered state that if that feels more. Um, sure. 
Um, okay, so so I guess there are sort of a couple of ways I would answer this question. So, you know, from the perspective of, of sort of depth psychology and speaking as a neo-Jungian, the idea here is, yeah, your ego is the center of your conscious mind. You know, your capital S self is the center of your unconscious mind, which is also populated by various archetypes and the complexes that are allowing you to interact with them and yada, yada, yada. That's a big subject. Mm -hmm. But the point is that you have these various other parts basically, that you have a conscious mind and a conscious complex, but you also have various parts. And those parts in and of themselves possess their own emotional take, their own perspective, their own uh, motives. Um, so those things are operating sort of in your skull at the same time. One of the benefits of altered states in this respect, um, and in general, is just that altered states often open up channels of communication, which um, may allow those things to speak with us somewhat more directly. Uh, and often they provoke insights, which might allow us to pick up sort of the patterns of these things inferentially, even when we're not making direct contact. So one of the sort of kicks in the teeth uh, around this stuff is the more we push it away from ourselves, which we very often do. So we have something, you know, pesky complex, whatever, that's getting in our in our way and interfering with our conscious goals. And so our tendency is to push it offside, push it offside. But that doesn't uh, sort of destroy it when we suppress it or repress it. Um, it just makes it go out into the dark where it gets weird like Gollum in Lord of the Rings and skulks around and it causes us problems. So, or the other example I sometimes use is um, from Peter Pan. So there's a scene in Peter Pan where Peter takes a pair of um, silver scissors and he cuts his own shadow off at the feet. Uh, and then Peter gets sick and the shadow goes running around in the room on its own uh, and they have to catch it and sew it back on. So the idea that we can separate ourselves out from these parts is nonsense. But what we succeed in doing when we push them away is we reduce our conscious contact with them. That gives them an increased amount of autonomy. It makes them harder for us to detect. And that's what I mean when I say getting punched in the dark. It's like they're operating outside of our consciousness, but nevertheless affecting our consciousness and affecting the way that we perceive things, et cetera, et cetera. So being in an altered state is often a way of getting out of that habitual framework and sort of expanding our uh, access to various parts of the mind that we may otherwise be blocking off. So as a simple example, right, something like uh, MDMA, right, which massively reduces uh, sort of anxiety response and so on and so forth, would allow somebody to get in contact with uh, you know, a part of themselves that normally they might reject out of hand as a kind of a, you know, as a, as a terrified rejection. That's not me. I can't handle it. I'm pushing it away, et cetera, which perpetuates the issue. Whereas, you know, with MDMA, as we've seen in many cases, a sort of PTSD treatment and therapy, right? Uh, people's anxiety can be dropped to a place that they can empathically connect with often other people, but also with aspects of themselves, which is the very thing that's sort of called on to bring this stuff back into relationship and closer contact with consciousness so that it's not running around on its own. Um, the, you know, other way that I would tend to think about this is that altered states, you know, they, um, on the brain level, you know, effectively speaking, you know, different, you know, different states and different compounds and things obviously are having pretty broadly different effects, but many of them are changing the connective patterns of the brain in a way that is necessarily creating novel connections outside of our habitual kind of loops and frameworks. 
right? So we're, we're, you know, we normally have fairly habitual patterns of firing. And in some cases, certainly mental illness, things are like stuck in a ruminative loop. So if you can disrupt that stuff a little bit, but also throw some long links, all of a sudden you're cross-connecting the brain in a way that it isn't normally cross-connected. And that means that Again, there's access to regions that you don't normally have access to. That represents, you know, often a profound shift in somebody's um, relationship to themselves and their relationship to the world, because all of it is sort of mediated. So you can see those are sort of two variations on the same idea in a sense, but, um, you know, an altered state, potentially speaking, can open up a huge amount of sort of unconscious material and give a voice very often to aspects of ourselves that... Um, sometimes struggle to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you had brought up MDMA, reducing anxiety, allowing people to raise their state and get into more of an empathetic kind of mm. relationship with their own experience, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. I would even throw alcohol in there as something mm -hmm. that can do that. And so uh, one of the things that is coming up is around addiction. So I think one of the fears around doing some of these uh, psychedelics or mood altering drugs and substances is that we chase that high. Mm -hmm. um, what's the theory around taking that state out of the altered state and into your normal life so you're not constantly looking for it? Right. I mean, the old saw left over from the 60s on this subject is when you get the call, hang up the phone. So, I mean, to some extent, and this is one of the ways that I talk about it, there are a bunch of instances in the 1960s where, um, you know, uh, Ram Dass, formerly Richard Alpert, uh, for instance, famously took a bunch of LSD to India to give it to, you know, some uh, sort of Indian spiritual gurus. And they, you know, took uh, the LSD and then sat there and they didn't have a freak out despite the enormous dose. And they eventually sat there and said, oh, yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, I recognize this, but you don't need LSD to get here. Actually, you can get here with meditation. Now, that is an apocryphal story. It's a bold claim. But at a certain level, that kind of must be true. Like there is nothing that we're introducing exogenously into the brain that isn't something that the brain couldn't hypothetically produce as an experience itself, right? Um, there, there is, you know, insofar as it's affecting patterns of firing and to some extent wiring, right? Those are things that the brain theoretically could do. It's unusual in many cases for it to do them, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't do so. And the brain is, of course, remarkably plastic, um, as we're discovering far, far more plastic and more flexible than we ever thought. So the idea you know, that you get kicking around even in the 60s is you take something in part as a way to show yourself the possibility of that mode of existence, whereupon then having seen the distant vision, you actually embark on the journey to get there. Now, for lots of people, that's going to be a dissatisfying answer, right? Uh, because, you know, if you uh, eat magic mushrooms on a, a light and sunny Sunday afternoon and suddenly realize all are one and we're the vibration of ourselves uh, trotting around in the park, that's lovely. And then you come back down and you have to pay your taxes, right? And the idea that you're going to sit for the meditation pillow, right? Uh, sit on the meditation pillow for 20 years in order to find your way back there is disheartening. Mm -hmm. But I think that you know, the idea of chasing the state by introducing it over and over again has pretty repeatedly been shown to be, you know, problematic at the very least. Um, you know, it often can be habit forming, even if it isn't strictly addictive. Um, and so certainly many people, you know, can attest to uh, weekend warriors who are traditionally using things that aren't, you know, addictive per se, 
but they are using them every single weekend, like without fail and in large doses, you know, in an attempt to sort of chase that experience where it may in fact be possible to, for them to find their way there in more conventional means. So yeah, once you get the call, hang up the phone, I think is the basic notion. And I would actually expand that by one thing. This sort of comes out of my own theoretical work, but I actually think that once you have had the experience, it is significantly easier to get there because you are essentially just widening out a thin trail that your brain has already created, right? Mm -hmm. Once you've had the experience, it's sort of like that state space coordinate is already locked into the system. And so it's actually easier to get back there. You can sort of return to it because you know what it feels like. And so you can use that as a as guidance point. So I actually think that, in fact, these things can accelerate practice, but that's a somewhat controversial idea, depending on mm. who you talk to. Mm -hmm. Well, just from experience, I feel like that's true. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm going to ask you a question that seems like it's uh, out of left field, and this might just be your opinion, but um, something around respecting the experience. So when people mm -hmm. have a question, a big problem in their life, and yeah. they go to a type of plant medicine to get that insight, and then they don't, they, they get it, they know exactly what they need to do, but it's not the thing that they want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they continue to live their life. And they're like, I just need more insights, meaning I just want a different answer. And then they keep going back to it and keep going back to it. Do you have any stories or um, any thoughts on what that can do to your psyche when you keep getting that uh, the vibration of the cosmos slapped into your face to the point where is there a point where the, the medicine will stop respecting you because you stop respecting it? So, I mean, my general feeling is that many sort of plant medicines and states in general have something of kind of a diminishing return effect. I mean, there are, you know, it's typically almost always most mind blowing and expansive the first time, and it may subsequently be doing a slightly different thing, but it's a rare case where something continues to have that blow you away awe-inspiring effect unless you are escalating it in some dimension. Uh, when people keep going back to the well, despite the fact that they already sort of got the message, that's a, a perennial problem that is not, you know, obviously limited to sort of psychedelics and psychedelic use. Like the mm -hmm. same thing happens in all sorts of domains. So if people are locked in in that way, then yeah, of course, they're going to be resistant to what comes at them. Um, very often what can happen in those cases, in my experience, both sort of psychedelically speaking and and not uh is that yeah their their unconscious stops playing nice with them so you know one of the things about these sort of autonomous forces that you when, when you sort of get into the work you find it increasingly they try to get your attention and if you won't give them your attention if you won't listen to what they're telling you um then there are a variety of ways that they can turn up the volume on that message. So in dream, for instance, one of these ways is they turn the dial up towards nightmare because nightmares will get your attention. When a regular dream that's doing its quirky David Lynch thing is not grabbing you, right? Uh, cranking it up into nightmare will definitely grab you. If you wake up in a sweat and bolt up right in your bed and can't scream, that's definitely going to get your attention. So it's not uncommon to see dream threads where people are like ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it, or they get the message and they're like, no, <laughs> and it will gradually turn up the dial. The same thing I find happens in, um, in psychedelic experiences in some cases, if people won't listen, then um, it's not so much that it sort of breaks contact and drifts out. Like I'm not bringing you any more insights as it's like, you really need to hear this. Mm. 
In the same way, generally, as with these sorts of experiences, if you are highly resistant to going with the experience, you're much more likely to have a bad time, right? You know, your likelihood of having a bad trip uh, it goes up considerably if you spend the whole time fighting it, um, right? Fighting it, attempting to main control, fighting it, you're, you're likely to have a far less pleasant time of things. Um, in a sense, you're fighting it when you're not listening to what it has to say. Um, bearing in mind that you should always obviously run this stuff through a certain kind of interrogative eye and take it with a grain of salt because you can get all kinds of messages from your unconscious and not all of them should be interpreted literally. But um, yeah, that's generally in my experience what happens. It turns the dial up towards nightmare uh, in, uh, in sort of broad strokes. I think that this is a bit of an issue because so many of us that are exploring these things now are in our 30s and 40s and 50s we're late in the game as opposed to how this might have been introduced if we were born into another culture or at a different time and so um i would love if you could touch on ethnogens in other cultures you know so mm -hmm. we can get a, a good well-rounded idea of how this isn't new um we're just being reintroduced to it sure so i mean altered state use occurs in every culture period. Not every culture necessarily has a sort of a psychedelic tradition. A lot of it tends to be dependent on what kinds of um, plants and fungi and animals are psychoactive in the area and therefore what they have access to. Um, but pretty much you'll find that uh, almost any region where there is something psychoactive, even when it's relatively speaking like onerous and complicated to get at, people will have gotten at it and they will have optimized it to use in um, you know, initiation and in various kinds of visionary states in sort of shamanic states. So the, the indigenous cultures of various areas almost always have zoned in on this stuff in some way, shape or form. Um, and, and in some cases, I mean, that's really like, it's dramatic. So, um, you know, if you look at uh, certain kinds of mushrooms in Northern Europe that you really properly can't eat themselves, but what you can do is feed them to a reindeer who is a big enough animal that it can process the toxins at which point it excretes in its urine the active components and so then you can drink its urine in order to right get high uh well get high is a bit dismissive that's that's mm. not what i mean but you know what i mean in order to have the that effect at the point when you're processing things by t picking stuff feeding it to an animal collecting the urine and drinking it you're obviously going through a lot of process Ayahuasca, ditto. Um, many people have commented that ayahuasca is a kind of mm, ecological improbability. The possibility that out of the many, many, many thousands of different plant species that exist in the Amazon, somebody would spontaneously combine an MAO inhibitor together with something that contains endogenous DMT it seems like an astounding thing. Now, humans are naturally experimental and exploratory, so maybe that's not that surprising, but, right? Um, and there are much weirder cases. I mean, if we have time, we can talk about um, uh, a particular compound that is made out of giraffes, allegedly. But the point is, every human culture has these things, um, you know, in some way, shape, or form. If they don't have an exogenous, like a, a sort of a, a drug-based thing, then they'll use chant and dance and fasting and smoke and whatever else they need to to hit altered states so hitting altered states is pretty much a human universal um you can even see it uh, beyond humans right animals are actually quite partial to altered states um uh, various kinds of like uh, uh, warthogs in uh, gabon will dig up the roots of the um, iboga tabernanthe 
which is an evergreen shrub that contains a quite powerful entheogen, um, iboga, uh, which we've synthesized as ibogaine, but uh, iboga. So they'll chew the roots and then, you know, like lie on their sides panting. Well, why would they do that? Some people will make the claims of the kind like, well, by eating these things, they're purging themselves of parasites. It's like, yeah, okay. But is the overall evolutionary advantage of lying on your side, panting and tripping balls seems to somewhat outweigh <laughs> the anti-parasitological effect, right? Likewise, um, you know, uh, apes have been known to eat uh, mushrooms and things. So animals just like altering their states. Uh, you can see it with children too, as simple as watching very young kids um, develop a fascination with spinning. You know, did you ever do spinning? I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Well, what's yeah. the point of that? Like, why do we do it? We do it because it's interesting, right? But like, why? Um, we spin and we spin and we spin and we spin, and potentially until we feel sick or fall over and hit our head. And when we stop, we watch our vision be disorienting and we can't hold our balance and it tracks in various ways. And right, that's something that we just naturally do. We like to alter our consciousness in various ways. Probably, I would claim, because there is a direct utility to doing so. But above and beyond that, you know, there it does get integrated into a more sophisticated tradition. I think that following that natural impulse to altered states eventually led people into quite sophisticated methods of using those altered states to both reach um, states that would be extremely difficult to reach without them, but also to facilitate intentional self-transformation, um, often in the direction of, of wisdom. So, mm -hmm. you know, humans may have sort of stumbled on this stuff, but um, but you know, it's very clear that we have a deep impulse uh, to pursue it, to alter our states and to look for things that alter our states. You know, we're sort of endlessly fascinated by it. And if you want to include powerful emotional states, which obviously are sort of genetically built in, uh, then basically every single thing we care about is an altered state. I mean, love to the ancients was a form of madness. It was a kind of possession by a god. That turns out to be not that bad of a description, because if you've been in love, it's like, of course, it makes you crazy. It makes you crazier when you break up, right? Like these are clearly altered states. They mind bend us. They can be crippling. They're often touchstones for people. They alter the way you talk about stuff. If you fall in love with somebody and they fall in love with you, you get that folia de, you know, cult, uh, you know, paranoid descriptive stuff. You know, we sat down <laughs> on the plane next to each other, and he had butter on his corn, and I had butter on my corn. And what are the odds? You know, this kind of thing, right? And that's a that's a, a shift in our cognition. So basically every single thing we care about is a strong shift. People don't write odes to sitting on a clear day doing nothing. Oh, <laughs> love that. Oh, that's going to be a new project of mine, just really normal songs. Right, an, an, ode, an ode to normalcy. Um, <laughs> so admittedly, to loop this back around since 2016, that does seem considerably more appealing. But... Um, you know, and actually I should say that people very often when we're talking about the subject, one of the things people will say when they're interested in this stuff is I want more meaning. Mm. I want more meaning. And one of the things I like to point out to people is that that is not a unidirectional desire. We do not always want more meaning. In fact, if you've just gone through a powerful experience of this kind, you really probably want less meaning. There are conventional cases where you want less meaning, right? All the time. So like, um, if I have a client that comes in and is experiencing depression, the first question I ask them is like, have you had your thyroid checked? Because that can be a totally sort of biological mechanistic explanation for depression. And if it's that, great. 
take some iodine pills and you're good. You would rather find out that it's a robot issue than a deep-seated issue that emerges from your childhood, right? So, you know, there are cases where we actually want less meaning, less free will, more mechanism. Um, and anybody who has ever, you know, spent the day in, you know, LSD communion with the floating head of John Lennon or whatever knows that afterwards, the day afterwards, you don't want more meaning. You just mm. want to like have a bowl of oatmeal that doesn't signify anything. Right? <laughs> it's just oatmeal. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so that was a bit roundabout, I suppose. But the point is, it's it's a pure cultural universal, the, the seeking after of altered states, I would claim. And, you know, there's obviously some variation in terms of how people get there, but the urge to get there is invariable and uh, extends outside of humans and goes to children and... I would say that probably it's like a, a base evolved function of the way cognition and consciousness work. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I remember last summer when I was at camp with the whole family, mm -hmm. um, you know, grandpa's going on the beer run and seven-year-old Archer's like, Hey Jeeps, can you get us some candy? And he like winks at him just like someone would if they asked him for a handle of vodka or something. And I was right. like, that was weird. Why did that seem so adult? And I realized the kids want to have this altered state of consuming so much candy and sugar while yeah. we're, you know, having our beers and things like it's camp. People just want to be in a different realm. <laughs> That's right. When's yeah. the last time you had a sugar high? Uh, yeah, well, not in a while, but it feels great. <laughs> That it sort of it's a <laughs> steep it's a steep crash so i had one i had one relatively recently somewhat to my surprise like a few christmases ago i made i made christmas pudding and uh sort of traditional you know depression era recipe for christmas pudding and it has this caramel sauce and i don't know what i was thinking in terms of my estimates i bought like 10 pounds of potatoes for this thing so i just made an absurd amount on top of how much other dessert there was and unwilling to concede that I had overdone it, I decided to take a, you know, like a bowl that really, uh, you know, did honor to the amount of Christmas pudding I had with. So, you know, I had this enormous sort of bowl of Christmas pudding, which I wolfed down and it's delicious. But that caramel sauce is basically just, you know, it's like syrup. So I finished eating this thing and, and I finished eating it. And all of a sudden I was like, I'm having a sugar high. Like I haven't had a sugar high since I was like 10. Um, I forgot about this. My body isn't used to it because I don't sit and eat Reese's Pieces until I want to throw up anymore. But the point is, you know, uh, I, I had it and I was like, oh, I remember this. Hyper as hell for like 45 minutes. And then I was like, oh, my God, I need a nap. I hate myself. <laughs> yeah, like this is the worst. Um, yeah, well, so. yeah, like on that then, um, when we look at ayahuasca and drinking alcohol or consuming an entire Christmas pudding over the sink mm. like an animal – uh, why, <laughs> why do we feel that the ayahuasca is the really real that we can, can like reshift our whole lives to realign with what we've learned in that experience? And, you know, you have your other altered state of the sugar and the booze that's like filled with guilt and remorse. You know, why are these two experiences, um, different in that sense? Well, to some extent, I mean... You know, so this is one of the problems with using the terms altered states, right? Like we're trying to cover a lot of ground uh, with that term. It, this is a problem that we have in science generally, I add. So like mm, we talk about Euclidean geometry and non-Euclidean geometry, but non-Euclidean geometry in math, it's so vastly outnumbers Euclidean. It's, it's a weird thing. Same thing. We talk about vertebrates and invertebrates, mm -hmm. right? Except that invertebrates are much more common than vertebrates. So we're just like, we're spine bigots with our oh, vertebrae. Yeah. 
it's the same thing with altered states. We call them altered states, but they vastly outnumber ordinary states in, you know, in a huge range. So, you know, they're quite different. Getting super high on sugar just is unlikely to provoke, um, you know, a powerful insight, a reframing of, you know, yourself or your relationship to things. Different states, um, and certainly different sort of exogenous states, different substances and things, produce different experiences. I mean, you know, in many cases, they often have personalities. This is something that you sort of encounter when you talk to people who are into sort of plant teachers, um, that way of talking about it. But it seems to me that it's the case for synthetic things too. They have a certain kind of presentation to them. So um, for instance, um, ayahuasca is often described by people as being um, sort of having a feminine presence um, often, uh, salvia divinorum, which I had some, uh, experience with, interesting experience with, uh, is often associated with the Virgin Mary, uh, uh, iboga, tabernante iboga, which I talked about is often called, uh, old man iboga. Uh, and it's true. The first time that I had an experience of that, it wasn't that I saw an old man or something, but the first time that I had an experience of it, it had this particular quality to it. Um, you know, we did this sort of memory review state, which was not quite hallucination, but was, you know, visionary. So it called up sort of photorealistic memories of a, a relationship that I had had that was recent and uh, probably ill-considered uh, at the time. And it basically was like, okay, see this? And then it sort of rewound things to the point of like, okay, do you see, you know, where the threads of the codependency are? Like, do you see why you're doing this? And I was like, yeah. And then it forwarded it again and was like, you see, okay, now don't do that. And it very much had this kind of matter of fact, like, see what you're doing? Okay, do you see why you're doing it? Like, just stop that, you know, be mm. grown up, you know? And not in a chiding way, but rather just in a like, you know, like a see what you're doing, don't do that. Yeah. Like it really had that kind of quality to it, which was, you know, remarkable. So the difference is that sugar... I mean, I don't know what the spirit of sugar would be, hmm. uh, but something tells me that, yeah, when you're eating Christmas pudding <laughs> over a sink, the <laughs> that's such a that's such a funny image. I associate that with <laughs> nurses because my mother is a nurse. That's how nurses eat. But, um, you know, when you, when you know, I don't know what the spirit of sugar is, but my sense is it is sort of, you know, I don't know frenetic and electric and jagged uh, and a little bit attention deficit. I mean, you know, so it, it, I don't think sugar is deeply concerned with your place in the world and, you know, what you're doing with things and so on and so forth. This is not that kind of state. And different states are, you know, they're different. They provide different kinds of insights. They provide different kinds of, of modifications. And we're not always obviously chasing them for their self-transformative potential, at least not in the long term. Sometimes we're chasing them for their short-term emotionally transformative potential, oh, right? That's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a medicine woman out of Costa Rica who was saying that alcohol is called spirits for a reason, mm -hmm. speaking exactly to what you're talking about there, and that it can bring in demons because when the spirit is, um, I don't know, real demons or you know whatever else, but it can bring in uh, when it's disrespected, like distilled improperly, pr mm -hmm. produced, grown improperly, then the spirits evolve into a, a lower vibration of themselves. So I always thought that was really interesting because you can tell the difference between when you're drinking. I don't know if this is physiological or it's the spirits, but when you have a bit of vodka from a plastic bottle and then you have something like good Russian glass bottle potato vodka, how different mm -hmm. it feels. Could be demons, could be manufacturing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's hard to it's hard. I know what you mean, and it's hard to tag down because that that Russian stuff will strip the uh, you know strip the paint right off your table. So obviously, it's not a primarily chemical distinction. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. A lot of the time, I think that problem, at least um, in the West and North America in particular, uh, chalks up to what I sometimes call the fast food atom bomb pro problem. Mm. Um, so. <laughs> So we, we love, as a sort of a technocratic culture um, and, a, and a sort of technological consumerist culture, we love taking something that is relatively mild and slow in its original context and concentrating it into hypertrophic forms. So, you know, a version of this that everybody loves is ice cream. Um, which is a completely hypertrophic experience, right? There's nothing like it in nature. It exaggerates all the things we love to the point where it's like nature can't compete. You try to eat a piece of fruit after you've had ice cream and you're like, what is this bullshit? Mm -hmm. um, right? <laughs> right? F fast food classically does this too, right? So fast food is, of course, designed by food technologists who are concerned with hitting the bliss point Right, an evolutionary intersection of sort of salt, sugar, fat, and certain kinds of flavors, often added aromatically in the form of esters, right, to create a hypertrophic food experience that we find more compelling than food. We do the same thing with our altered states. You know, in its indigenous context in the Andes, people chew coca leaves or take coca tea as a way of you know, taking a mild stimulant, the way that we would drink a cup of coffee or have a Red Bull, and to deal with altitude sickness. And in those contexts, it seems relatively well contained. It's culturally framed. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Is that what we do with it? No. We like to take all those leaves, extract the substance, dry it up, and then snort it through a dollar bill. Or, if that's not fast enough for you, we'll cook it into a rock, which you can then smoke to get it even faster and harder. Well, then it's a problem. Poppies, right, in their own context, poppy tea or something of this kind is a, you know, a relatively mild experience, right? If you've had, you know, sort of opium tea or something of this kind, it's like a slow, chill, mild pain reduction, nice afternoon kind of thing. Is that what we do with it? No. We extract it and first we turn it into and then we turn it into heroin. And then we begin creating synthetic heroines that are a billion times more powerful than heroin. And, you know, this is sort of a this is a thing that we like to do. We did the same thing with salvia. Salvia in its indigenous context is chewed as a quid. Right. So you chew it and it enters your bloodstream kind of lightly. That's not what we do. We extract it and then relayer it onto the leaves at a 30 to 50 times concentration. So if you have some, it sort of blows you in outer space. So. This is sort of one of the this is one of these sort of problems that we have in in interacting with this stuff is that we're always coming at it in that way. Does that constitute sort of disrespecting the spirit of the thing? I mean, sometimes I'm inclined to think so. Partly it serves, you know, a problem that we have around this stuff, which is that we often fail to consider that these things are, in most cases, tools, not toys. And we want them to be toys because we're an infantile society and we want everything to be a toy. Um, but they are not primarily toys and treating them that way uh, past a certain point really is disrespecting them. And in my experience, they will get super pissed off if you do that. Um, <laughs> that's like a, that's a short route to having a very powerful and humbling experience uh, if you kind of can't treat them with that level of respect. So 
I don't, does that, I guess that answers the question. I think we have a cultural problem basically around this kind of disrespect and whether or not we're really talking about a spirit or a demon and, or whether that's a psychological metaphor, eh, it doesn't matter. The experiences are basically the same. So, um, you know, we, I think we need to sort of shift our orientation around it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you yeah. brought that up because actually when we were talking about sugar and you were like, what is the what is the spirit of sugar? I, I was immediately mm. thinking of Hawaii and sugar cane and slow mm. and graceful, but then we went to jagged and ADD and, you know, wild, wild squirrel. And I think that, uh, we can bring shadow work into this a little bit. Sometimes that's how our archetypes show up is like the opposites. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had mentioned that Salvia, uh, the spirit of Salvia might be the Virgin Mary. Now I had the fantastic opportunity of listening to your salvia story for the documentary that we recorded which by the way if you guys want to check that out you can go to posttraumaticgrowth.film our teasers there and it should be done early next year so how did the virgin mary show up in that story i mean i don't know if you want to relay this because it was so good but it seems like a stretch although maybe not i don't know no no it it really wasn't so okay i so i can retell that story uh, in brief um so during a period where I was working as a full-time writer, I had a house rented. So I was spending, um, I, I lived alone basically for, for two and a half years. And I was writing full-time, often about 16 hours a day. Uh, and one of the things about, writers as a profession have a relatively high rate of uh, substance abuse when you look at the demographics. Um, but uh, I contend that this isn't a temperamental issue with writers. Uh, it's just that writers happen to have a lot of free time. You know, if <laughs> if you can, you know, you're hitting a block and you can stop at two in the afternoon and you're like, well, <clears throat> maybe something would nudge me and back into the creative space. The likelihood that you will do so at some point, if you already have that kind of taste, is fairly high. So somebody had sent me some salvia, which uh, I think it's still legal in Canada. It was certainly legal at the time. But somebody had sent it to me in the mail, uh, knowing that I was sort of interested in this sort of thing and was like, you really need to, to check this out. Um, so, you know, I had some, uh, and, and it was indeed quite fascinating. It was an experience rather unlike rather unlike any that I'd had, it played with sort of the boundaries of um, fundamental framing and object recognition in ways that I hadn't experienced with other things. And so, you know, it was interesting. Um, and so at some point, I became rather cavalier uh, about uh, using it, to be perfectly honest. I, I did all of the things which I advise people not to do. Um, and I should preface this by saying, <clears throat> as a scientist, this is a highly unscientific and not recommended way of doing this kind of, this is all of the irresponsible things that I typically say don't do. We'll so, get into the responsible stuff after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, so the thing is I treated it like a like a toy, basically, not a tool. Um, you know, I, I had some, it, you know, put me into a relatively strong altered state. Uh, before that altered state had finished, I had more. Uh, and as the sort of second wave of this started to come in, as the second wave of it started to come in, I had a feeling which I have often described, I think pretty accurately, as being like, if you were standing on the beach and you watched the sea start to rise up in like tsunami tidal wave fashion, like watching a wall of water kind of coming in as the shallow, right? Watching this thing loom up. And so I could kind of feel this this experience arising and coming in. And I was like, oh no, like this is much more than I bargained for. Uh, and I could feel it rising up. And the last conscious thought that I had was, <clears throat> oh God, you've gone and done it this time. 
uh, was the last <laughs> the last thing I thought. So at least I was gentlemanly on the way out. Uh, then there's a gap um, because that is what happens at, at sort of high doses with this. There's sort of a complete gap in memory formation. When I came to, um, when I came to, uh, I experienced what I have sometimes described, often described actually, as the most terrifying five minutes of my life. So um, the sort of disruption in fundamental framing and object boundaries that was sort of interesting and curious at lower levels, at higher levels was ramped up such that there were no familiar objects, no body boundaries, no recognizable categories of space and time. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was. I certainly didn't know that I was on a drug. I had no, um, I had no way to parse what was happening to me. I was just in sort of a swirling vortex of fragments, uh, which, which I couldn't make sense of, um, and, and without body boundaries. So my own body was sort of caught into this. It was disorienting as you might expect. And, um, so, you know, this went on for a while with me really not having any idea what was happening. Uh, and then finally, I caught sight of the clock that was in my office. I fixed my, because uh, I was in my study at the time. Um, and I realized that I had sort of launched myself backwards out of my desk chair. Uh, and so I caught sight of my clock. Uh, and suddenly that allowed me to anchor in. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> I'm Anderson Todd. I'm in my office. Uh right, this is Salvia, this is all going to be over uh, in a few minutes. Okay, whew, you know. Uh, at which point I had the distinct experience, and I'm not making a specific metaphysical claim around the reality of this apparent experience, so take what you will from it, but I had the specific experience of being telepathically contacted by the various whirling fragments of matter around me who informed me that, no, I was wrong. Uh, things were not going to be returning to normal in three minutes. So this was not the sort of normal state that sometimes strikes one in an altered state where they're like, oh God, what, what if I've gone crazy and I never go back? This was me being directly informed in a, you know, sort of in a, in a propositional and imperative way that things were not returning to normal, oh. that because salvia wasn't a drug i had just misunderstood it was a kind of vibrational key and because i had disrespected it um you know they had decided to destroy the universe including retroactively to teach me a lesson about humility so it turned out that these hyperspace elementals or whatever the hell they were uh constituted normally the regular objects of my experience so you know if you sort of look behind me you can see various regular objects but the way that you perceive these things in salvia, the objects might cut across perceptual lines. So what you're normally seeing as being sort of an integrated object, like this green thing, you might instead see as, you know, this shadowed bit and this section of, you know, bookcase or something would be self-evidently to you an object. Mm. So, you know, like when you look at objects, they, it's not that they have a black line around them, but they stand out, they're framed self-evidently as an integrated object for the most part, if there's mm -hmm. not an optical illusion. That is all cut apart and disrupted. It's like somebody cut the universe into a new jigsaw puzzle. So imagine that everywhere, but moving, and then imagine that the pieces are informing you that uh, normally they would hang together very politely in order to form all the things and people and categories and objects that you are familiar with, including your loved ones in the past, but uh, now they're not going to. So both everything was destroyed, but also retroactively, it, like everyone I had ever known or loved was in fact an illusion and we were never going back and I should get used to it. So that went for a couple more minutes. <laughs> And then, you know, gradually I began to return to my sort of, 
you know, the, the like conventional body integrity, right? I, I had a sense of the boundaries of my own body. Oh, what was, was your emotional thing. state during this? Terror. Were you crying verbally, anything, or was it just all internal, you think? Or you, too, you... too, too scared to cry, I think. Mm-hmm. Terror. I was terrified. I mean, I was sort of resisting it, right? Because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, this is all going to be over. And they were like, no, it is not. Uh, you have violated our sacred trust. And it's, nope, nope, this is going back. This is over in two minutes. So, you know, I was sort of fighting against it. But terror, I mean, it was a very compelling experience. It seemed awfully realistic. And uh, I mean, it was, right, in some sense. So once my body integrity sort of came back, uh, I spoke aloud because I wasn't speaking aloud. I spoke aloud for the first time. And as I recall what I said for the next 45 minutes, all I could say uh, sort of repeatedly was, um, uh, holy fuck, uh, right? I got up. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I felt vaguely violated, so I took a shower. Uh, so I was like taking a shower and I was touching the wall of the shower. And see, kids who are listening at home, this, <laughs> you can see this is not science. Okay, so uh, so I'm touching the wall of the shower because I'm expecting that at any second everything may blow back apart into fragments, right? That this is a lull or a trick, right? I had the overwhelming sense that was like, oh no, uh, this is what happens when you die. Why I believe that, I'm not certain, but that was a very strong mm-hmm. feeling. So, you know, for an hour I was really scared, really grappling with it, really not sure what to do. Uh, and then I undertook an unusual move or people have told me it's unusual which is i thought to myself if i don't get back on this horse i'm going to be terrified of this forever which is maybe something i picked up from my father it's like did you just have a bad experience you should do it again immediately uh so i went and immediately had more salvia the difference is that this time i went in and i went in sort of waving the white flag and saying okay look i'm sorry i disrespected you i get it you know, you smacked me down. I appreciate that. I was not being, you know, I was not being sufficiently respectful or cautious. Okay, I'm coming back in. Um, and that time I went back in and the character of the experience was utterly different. I had, uh, among other things, a sort of vision of this uh, glassy reflective lake, which had wooden masks floating on it. Uh, and the very clear sense that this in some way was a depiction of the relationship between sort of the infinite divine mind and individual personalities, right? That we were sort of masks floating on the surface of the lake, obscuring parts of the reflection of the sky, right? And indeed, as part of this, there was this female merciful presence. So when I emerged from it, the idea that sort of the Virgin Mary, I mean, it wasn't literally feel like the Virgin Mary, despite the fact that I have some Catholic upbringing, but it definitely had this kind of quality. It had a quality of maternal mercy of like, okay, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know what, you, you did the right thing and now you've learned your lesson. And so it's okay. So it really did have that quality. But first, uh, first I had the first experience, which is maybe not everybody's cup of tea, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that story. It reminds me of, uh, first of all, you're really good at explaining what this process is like because it's it goes beyond words. So that's impressive. Um, my first ayahuasca experience, I had a piece of paper towel 
mm-hmm. that I was tearing into pieces. And I knew that once I got to the end of this paper towel, I would be completely untethered and get into that experience of objects don't make sense. And I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> I remember tearing the last bit of this paper towel was so tiny. It was just like, pew. and as soon as I did that, I was just like flying off into space. Oh, but I'm going to re-listen to this so I can explain that a little better this time. <laughs> no, 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 I want to hear huh? it. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, um, yeah. uh, so, 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 so you had sort of the intimation was the experience, sorry, now I'm super interested. Was the experience yeah. building over the course of this or it was just mm-hmm. like, you had like the knowledge. It's like, once you're done this, we go. Uh, yeah, but it was terror. It was terror. I was terror. ripping the paper towel out of fear, but then I realized I had gone too far and this was the only thing keeping me tethered to who I am and everything that I believe in the earth. And once I did that, it, it exploded into what I needed to see, which was pure health. So it's a good time. So that's, that's an interesting thing to say. And I think it picks up on something that maybe needs to be said more often, mm. which is that people again right our, our culture in the same way as we're interested in sort of hypertrophic stimuli and um, pleasure right we want toys we want pleasure we do not want to consider tragedy we don't want to consider death we don't really we don't like old age you know there's a bunch of things that our culture sort of avoids that are part of the traditional human experience and one of those things is people never ever want to have a bad trip i mean it's it's very often talked about now granted there's i mean i've seen people have bad trips that can be quite you know, that can leave some scar tissue, you know, can leave wounds. But the idea that bad trips are inherently bad from a sort of developmental perspective, if what you're talking about is intentional self-development, it's just simply not so. Mm-hmm. Sometimes bad trips um, are what you need to grind your face into the things that you are refusing to deal with to bring this back around to shadow work. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and that go, that stretches from, you know, highly unconventional things, if you're talking about something like, I don't know, a boga or ayahuasca, which many people have not had, right? But, you know, the government insists on continuing to categorize cannabis as a soft drug, despite the fact that if you have enough of that, <laughs> uh, it will definitely, it'll grind your face into, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of thing. People have had those kinds of experiences, and they can be quite useful. So, yeah, that like terror followed by what I needed to see. Um, and one of the benefits of the altered state, of course, as I like to tell people is, it's a bit like the roller coaster. Like once you get on, you can't actually talk the operator into stopping the ride, which, you know, just because you're going up the hill and you're like, actually, I don't like this now, right? Could you please stop it, right? So I can get, I don't want to, click, 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 with all the nations of the earth spreading out, you know, around you. Um, just because that's what's happening doesn't mean you can get off the ride. And that's part of the benefit. Once you're in, you're in. It's also part of the, I mean, I think it's quite common, even for people who are experienced to sort of start that and then say to themselves, why am I doing this? Like other people are having a nice Saturday afternoon at the park. I'm Mm. a weirdo. But, uh, But nevertheless, it gets you into that sort of inevitable track once you're on it. And very often that's about sort of holding your feet to the fire or really bringing you in a confrontation with something that you might otherwise not have the courage to bring yourself into confrontation with often mm-hmm. for the better. Um, so you had watched that movie, that, that YouTube link that I had sent you altered states. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it a few times. The book also? Okay. So that was, you said 20 years ago when you had rewatched it, that did that yeah. have some kind of impact on you or was that just a sci-fi thing that. It didn't, uh, it didn't have impact on me because. I mean, I, I saw the movie when I was a kid first. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of got raised 
uh, there were not many restrictions on the things I was allowed to watch as a kid, which might explain a lot. But I was allowed to watch, you know, uh, sort of R-rated films. There was no issues with violence or nudity or monsters. So I got raised on science fiction and horror movies. You know, I loved that stuff. So I probably saw that movie first when I was, I don't know, five or something oh, nice. of that kind. Yeah, right. Um, and my yeah, father... Not a, not a developmental oh. period at all, right? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I watched all kinds of stuff when I was five. You know, uh, Yellow Submarine, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, all, all kinds of odd stuff in that period. Um, uh, the Thing, Cronenberg, oh, or yeah. not Cronenberg. Uh, that's my favorite movie. Um, not Cronenberg. Uh, damn it. Uh, John Carpenter. Um, Cronenberg's The Fly was the other one I was thinking of, but that's later. I was like nine. So... Uh, so I kind of got raised on that stuff. My father also was, I mean, my father was, I suppose, in the current term, my father was a head. So my father was very interested in psychedelia. He had been uh, sort of an early hippie adopter. He was, in fact, largely responsible, I think, for ferrying LSD from Toronto to Hamilton, Ontario wow. um, in its early days. Yeah, he was involved in that. And in some cases with consequences. But the point is, my father was very interested in psychedelia himself. We always had stuff around the house. So I also got raised on Cheech and Chong movies. And I got, mm. you know, there was sort of scientific American books of altered states and this kind of thing. So this stuff was always a little bit around me. Like it was easy for me to indulge my curiosity. So when I saw altered states, I don't know that it had a big impact on me. But I will say, Less from Altered States and more maybe from the source material on which it is based. Not even the Patichievsky novel, which I also have and have read, uh, but rather John Lilly's work with float tanks, right, with mm. sensory deprivation. That stuff definitely had an impact on me. Um, and indeed, when, when I originally proposed the Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Laboratory to John Verveke at, at U of T that we founded together... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no small part of my motivation was I was trying to figure out a way to get the university to both pay for and house a flotation tank for me. And I thought if I could <clears throat> figure out a research angle, then I could get a float tank installed because putting one into my apartment seemed prohibitive at the time. Um, Did you get it? No. Oh. I, keep I keep trying. I keep trying. They keep telling me no. That's the point Apparently, of all this thing, huh? <laughs> just to get yeah, that's, tank. my whole career has just been bent towards getting a float tank, and I can't seem to get one. Um, <laughs> no, they no. And every time I bring it up, they either look at me like I'm like they're like, no, we're definitely not doing that. <laughs> and I'm like, why? With a float tank. <laughs> yeah, why? Is it a liability? Uh, maybe. Well, I'll just use it though. But then, why would we have it? It's important to keep me happy. Um. <laughs> Yeah, no, no sale yet. <laughs> Anderson Todd's a diva. Um, okay, I want to back up really quick and explain this for people that don't know this movie. Because I think it's, it's oh, yeah. is this a classic sci-fi film that I just haven't heard of and I'm late to the game? I would call it, I mean, sort of classic. It won some awards and things, but okay. I don't know that it's especially well known. Um, so, well, do you want to do the introduction? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll try, you know, all I know is the, the, uh, epic trailer which wow trailers in the 80s they were pretty cool i was a little i was born a little after that so um but it starts like you know in the basement of a top research facility and something that's important dr whoever a candidate for the nobel peace prize is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science and the subject of that experiment is himself Right. That's how it starts off. I was like, oh, this is pretty good. This sounds like my conversation with Anderson Todd. <laughs> and then they show him like running through the desert, finding himself with a group of um, like indistinct or non-distinct indigenous people who give them this magical brew. And then there's a shaman nodding at him like, yep, you're going to 
you're going to see this, right? And then he's staring into the abyss and the abyss is staring back at him. And then his wife is like, if you love me, you'll stop doing this because I'm frightened. And the institution is like, this is super dangerous. And then, you know, he's like, ah, we've got millions of uh, untapped potential and memory in our dormant minds. And, you know, I think I have the answer to the universe and all these evolutionary genes. I have access to that, you know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this sounds like... (laughs) Like every human that has ever done ayahuasca or something that they have all the answers to the universe and then they leave with just like this, oh, I feel like I knew what the answers were, but now I'm back. Although I do feel like I tapped into something important. So I just bring this up because in that really short trailer, which was so fun to go through, you can see all these different opinions about this altered state. I don't know what it was in the movie, but then I don't think it ended up well for him. I don't know if it was a cautionary tale or something, but you know, yeah, have... without without spoiling it, it descends into into body horror. Okay. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he yeah. didn't come back and as an evolutionary human and you know be as good <clears throat> as turn into a monster or something. So um, I wanted to talk about the ethics of of ethnogens. I wanted to talk about hmm. you know it just kind of ended off with yes, it is it can be dangerous, it can be healing, it can be scary for people that love you when you go through things like this and there's big shakeups. Um, it's scary for the government in various ways. Um, well, I'll say, okay, it's it's scary for the systems that want us to do things the way that they've been done. So we can get into, you know, how can we dive into this responsibly and also holding sacred that bit of rebellion that is part of this too? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sort of depends. Um it depends in part on whether you want to sort of approach it in to borrow the modern magical terminology, if you want to approach it in a left-hand way or a right-hand way. You know, the right-hand way to, to approach it is, of course, to to get it in as authentically as possible its indigenous context. But that's harder and harder to do, right? You know, 25 years ago, it would have been relatively straightforward to have an ayahuasca ritual with a, you know, a... a an Amazonian shaman who was legit, but like <clears throat> the number of trained, uh, authentic um, shamans has you know boomed as this has become a tourist issue. Understandably, right? I mean, it's been monetized, so it's harder to have an experience that is sort of like authentic in some sense. You know, the same goes uh, for other kinds of experiences. But you know, if you're engaging it in that sort of authentic, original way, where it's contained within a a culture framework and so on and so forth. That's a certain kind of thing. If you want to preserve the rebellion aspect, well, that means going against, right? Necessarily the left-hand thing is about less the collective and the status quo and more, you know, delving into your individuality and, right, you know, making those choices for yourself. Uh, I happen to be, I suppose, a, I don't know what, a cognitive libertarian. I, I am not a general libertarian, but... I, I simply don't believe that states of mind should be policeable. Um, there, you know, we can police action, but the idea that we should criminalize a state of mind seems incredibly strange to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that we even consider it—that some states are okay and other states are like no—it's like no, like that's not a. <laughs> Surely, my skull has to be the boundary of of actual sanctity and privacy, if nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. So. You know, how how do we approach this stuff? Uh, Yeah, you know, anytime you're sort of stepping off the beaten path, you're going to agitate some people. Um, And some of that, you know, that's 
that doesn't even necessarily have to relate to something that's in theogenic. I mean, it's something that we see in therapy mm-hmm. all the time. You know, if you are engaging in therapy, it's very possible that you are going to end up coming to a new perspective on your relationships and coming to a new narrative of yourself. And it's not uncommon to find that that unsettles people. You may find that that kind of intentional self-transformation is both useful and, you know, like much needed and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily not going to piss off people around you who may have themselves adjusted into a state where you play a particular role and there is a particular story in a particular dynamic in a particular relationship. You upset the apple cart, people can get freaked out by that if it means that you're mucking up their game. So that's anytime you leave the beaten path. As far as sort of society at large goes, I mean, you know, during the first sort of blooming of psychedelic science in the West, to be perfectly honest, like people like Tim Leary, as charismatic as he was, right? And as as much of sort of a an amazing personality and popularizer once they taught him how to smile, um, he, he was, uh, you know, he kind of screwed things up for everybody. I mean, the sorts of experiments that he ran were just, you know, they were just like wildly... Um, unprofessional and like uncontrolled like you know if you're going to give a bunch of people a powerful psychedelic in a church basement you need to take precautions that they don't escape and go running down the street i mean that's you know sort of basic protocol now the joke i sometimes make when i teach this stuff is you know it's because we didn't invent ethics until 1993 but that's not quite true like even at the time people were a bit concerned about the extent to which he was doing this you get past academia and you start getting up into him being like, turn on, tune in, drop out. And you can understand why Richard Nixon, essentially speaking, considered him the most dangerous man in America for a while. Because, because there is a lot of vested interest in having us participate in the system as it exists. If you think your family is pissed off when you start stepping outside the role that's been assigned to you and upsetting the apple cart, imagine how pissed off people are when they have billions or trillions of dollars sunk into a system which relies on you being anxious, <laughs> anxious enough that you're like, what will deal with my anxiety? Probably I should buy something. And therefore I will work so that I can buy something that I do not need that will break down in a short period of time, but that's okay because fashion and planned obsolescence have made it such that I'll need another thing shortly because everything has to be at peak productive capacity because the economy needs to grow forever because if it ever drops below 2% growth, the whole thing implodes. We have a great big system that is designed over and over and over again to render people insecure, to take psychodynamics, I mean, modern PR, emerges directly from the work of Freud, directly via his nephew. And it's all, frankly, a black magic operation designed to turn the healing arts into something that manipulates people into being insecure. So they'll buy shit Mm. that they don't need. Well, the thing is that when you have a powerful altered state and you step sideways from that, it's a lot like therapeutically stepping sideways from, you know, from this. It's like, wow, you know, I've been eating shit sandwiches in my family dynamic for 20 years and maybe I don't want to. Well, when you step sideways from the big system and you're like, right, lots of people have had this experience in various altered states where they're like, hey, has anybody else noticed this is ridiculous? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Is this honestly what we're doing with our time? Yeah. Well, that's it's threatening to the system at some level, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the system as a big you know block thing, I don't want to get sort of 
abstracted or conspiratorial. There is no system. There's just people. I mean, at some level, at some level, obviously it's self-reinforcing, but yeah, that stuff is threatening. It was threatening to sort of the status quo. Now, you know, that was somewhat neutralized, but the point is like a lot of it had to do with this particular transformative, you know, sprinkle LSD on your cornflakes and hang out with Jimi Hendrix attitude that, um, that people like Leary had. So, you know, in light of that, I think a big part of, it's interesting to see how they played the game the second time around. So there's been this sort of stealth reintroduction of psychedelics. You know, we see, you know, some stuff with like Rick Strassman. It's always hanging around on the periphery. Rick Strassman starts doing some work that catches people's attention around DMT. And then the big breakthrough is the work at the uh, the Griffiths lab at Johns Hopkins. Uh, so when Griffiths starts publishing his work on psilocybin and mystical experience, right? I don't know what kind of hoops he had to jump through to get that work done, but it's tough to done. But the point is that was was careful research, carefully scaled, carefully controlled, neatly sanitized, involved doctors. And so just drib by drab, it turned out that they could sort of expand that field. And then at some point, the floodgates just broke open. Um, and people, you know, it had been long enough, 50 years went by, we decided it's worth taking a look again, because, you know, shocker, uh, it turns out that this stuff is, you know, kind of useful and important. Um, but we still have to be careful about it. And there are definitely places where we're not being careful. Um, you know, if we're not careful, we risk both agitating people who need to be gradually massaged into compliance. Um, but also, you know, we risk, um, getting too enthusiastic about something and overextending ourselves without doing proper sort of empirical tracking work. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think the, the way that they've approached it this time is sort of the right way to do it. Let's take it slow and steady. Let's not overextend ourselves. Let's try to use the tools that we've developed in the last 50 years to get a sense of what's happening. And all that is very preliminary and embryonic. But I think that that sort of cautious advance is that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and just getting people to talk about, you know, I remember a number of years ago, seeing in O Magazine, which was Oprah's magazine, a cover article about the use of MDMA in the treatment of PTSD by the military. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, something has shifted. When Oprah and the US military are teaming up to push ecstasy for the treatment of combat fatigue, basically, it's like, we're in a different ballgame. And, you know, that was something that sort of proceeded from there. Uh, you know, Michael Pollan, who did his uh, his book. I still haven't read that book. I really should. I sort of feel like it's not going to tell me things I'm not familiar with, but he's a good writer and I should, I should read it. But, you know, Michael Pollan did an enormous sort of popularizing job of being like, you know, these things can be kind of a big deal. Uh, on the slightly countercultural side, obviously, um, you know, people like, I think Joe Rogan has been a ceaseless, a ceaseless promoter uh, I mean, he's a ceaseless promoter generally, but he's been a ceaseless promoter of his particular experiences and the value that they've had. And as it's happened, things have started to filter out. People have begun to catch word that, uh, oh, it turns out this stuff was actually happening and significant for people anyway. And maybe, in fact, it's a lot safer than Nancy Reagan led us to believe. Mm. And, you know, but we still need to sort of play it cautiously, I think. Mm, Nancy Reagan. She was really into astrology. I always found that interesting. She said a lot of their decisions were based on that. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, I know they had an <laughs> astrologer that they worked with, and I was listening to a, I think an episode of Behind the Bastards um, about 
about that person, which was really interesting. But yeah, anyway. She's somebody that I want to look up more. I feel like there's something about Nancy Reagan that I'm going to find interesting. Um, so... I would not recommend you look her up right now because there is a wave of memes passing through the culture oh. about... <clears throat> Yeah, anyway, <laughs> they, they were brought to my attention the other day and I was like, I sort of wish I didn't know this at all. Oh, thank so, you. There, okay, I'm not going to look been it up warned. for a bit. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait, wait a bit. Yeah. Uh, microdosing seems to be a way that certain people want to um, dive into this feeling like it'll be a safer alternative, a mm -hmm. more gentle alternative. And you had something really interesting to say about that when I was interviewing, interviewing you previously for the documentary around microdosing um if you remember it was around sometimes you need more of a nudge and mm -hmm. also what i what i would really like for you to speak to is uh, when you get used to being in an altered state like what that could do mm -hmm. um so you mean you need more of a nudge rather than like a shove through the dimensional barrier like yeah sometimes you need a shove you know sometimes, sometimes you need, you need a shove, a shove. Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. The difference between microdosing and full dosing, I don't think, you know, it's the sort of thing where the the quantitative difference shades into a real qualitative difference, right? Where sort of quantity has a quality all its own. So a microdose often has, you know, pretty radically different sort of effects in some sense than a macrodose does. Um, I think the interest around microdose, the interest around microdosing, um, it's kind of fascinating to me. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of strong uh, empirical evidence around it yet. I know some of the people that did um, some early survey work around microdosing, and they were among the first papers published on microdosing at the time. This was only a few years ago. Uh, so there's been a little work, but not a lot. We don't know much about it. Um, as such, it's hard to sort of track whether or not the claims that are made around microdosing line up with you know, actual sort of measurable effects and so on and so forth. Um, to some extent, you know, initially speaking, I think microdosing appeals to people because it doesn't represent the same kind of roller coaster commitment. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you just like have a little bit and you feel a little whatever. And, you know, it almost holds out the, the free lunch promise. It's like none of, none of the weirdness and incapacitation, but a huge amount of change, right? <laughs> You know, certainly there are uses for it. Um, you know, one of the more skeptical things that has come in around it is, of course, the comment that, you know, in the 1960s, they used it to turn on, tune in and drop out. Uh, and now it's used by um, Silicon Valley executives to increase their productivity while working for Amazon. Um, right. So it's, it's sort God's of countercultural <laughs> credibility. Yeah, exactly. It's countercultural credibility. Uh, it's a little, little eroded. Uh, I think that it's I think that it's quite useful and interesting. And I think that um, the the interest in it is telling. I mean, it's a kind of, it's sort of operating according to the same model as, you know, other kinds of um, uh, sort of antidepressant medications and things of that kind are where, you know, like it's sort of a daily dose or a frequency dose based thing. The difference being that, you know, one of the big things I think that at least with conventional psychedelics that happens is that people get, as I often describe it, just a little looser in the joints. So there's just a very slight destabilizing effect, but the, the, the fact is that that lets things loosen up so that pieces can shift around in a way where normally they're locked in quite tightly to go through your day. So it loosens things up. That's good for some things. It's bad for other things. I don't think it's especially always useful for like highly concentrated work. 
right? But creative work, absolutely. And sometimes like hitting the flow zone in talking to somebody, it can be quite remarkable or doing expansive work, right? So I'm not sure that it's always, it's useful for everything or that it's some universal amplifier, but definitely that loosening up has uh, certain advantages and seems to help people get outside of the sorts of perspectives that they're locked in when they're often having sort of anxiety, depression, emotional blockage in this area. So it, it seems to loosen that up and free sort of psychic energy there. Um, and that's, you know, that's that little bit of nudge effect. I think that also it can be quite different um, between things. So there was a long period of time where I, uh, there was a long period of time where I dosed uh, somewhere between a gram or two of raw iboga root bark uh, every single day for how long? Months, months, five months, six months, quite a while. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was a very interesting, useful experience. It's not necessarily something I would have continued, but there's no question it had effects and lasting effects. It's a small dose. It wasn't enough to incapacitate me or lay me out or cause visions or any such thing. But it was a sort of mild alteration of my state that kicked in through the day. And in some ways, yeah, it somewhat dramatically altered my approach to things. I mean, you know, I took up running, went to the gym constantly. These are not part of my sort of natural tendencies most of the time. Um, you know, it... Uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it just it distinctly created certain kinds of effects and sidesteps and things. But like anything, you typically get diminishing returns. So speaking to this question of like operating once you've acclimatized to something, you know, most people who have some experience in this field know somebody who is like a wake and bake chronic, uh, the mm -hmm. sort of person who likes to, you know, blaze the second they wake up in the morning and they keep going all day long. And the amazing thing about those people when you think about it is how functional they are. I mean, they're doing things that they ought not to be doing often, like driving a car. But the point is, right, like it's actually quite remarkable how functional they are. Same thing goes if you think about sort of functional alcoholics, of which there are a relatively large number. Now, if you think about the first time that somebody, you know, smokes pot, what's the classic image here? The classic image is somebody who's either having a freak out or who is laughing their ass off and can't, you know, it's just like laughing nonstop and can't find it and then eats half a jar of peanut butter with a spoon. And that kind of being taken over by a state shifts over experience into this kind of like, well, I'm high, but I'm managing it. Mm -hmm. We can adjust to virtually anything in that way. So if you, you know, classic psychology, uh, classic psychology experiment, right? You put a set of like goggles on somebody's face that contain a set of mirrors such that everything is flipped upside down. And initially, that's highly disorienting. You can imagine if you were trying to navigate and everything was upside down, how disorienting that would be. Mm -hmm. But it's only disorienting briefly. You have problems with it briefly, and then your brain just adjusts. And once it adjusts, you experience things relatively normally. Likewise, we can get alternate modes of sensory material, and we can integrate them quite readily. So there's a classic machine that has like a bunch of little pins, okay? So it's got like a matrix, like a square of little pins. You put it in your back. It's linked up with like a low resolution scanning device. And so initially you'll feel little pins poking in your back, but very quickly that data gets switched over and you experience it as visual. You can use it to navigate with a blindfold on. 
So your brain is really good at this kind of thing, right? It's really good at taking a mode and just being like, oh yeah, I know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with an altered state. If you have the same distortion going all the time, eventually the system's going to compensate accordingly and you're going to be able to operate you know, much more easily. And that, of course, is the problem that you hit both. I mean, it's an advantage because it means you can go about your day without laughing uncontrollably with peanut butter on your face. But it's a disadvantage insofar as you really get that diminishing return. Your system gets better at correcting for the state such as it is, right? It gets better at figuring out how it needs to maneuver in order to bring you back into a considerably more normal kind of state. And that said, it, a little bit of that is good because it helps you navigate. It's less out of control. And is, would it be accurate to say that their your ability to um, your capacity to operate during the normal states, your normal state would be diminished? Um, well, I mean, it depends. A lot of the time, if people are hitting a state over and over and over again, it may be the case that they're sort of attempting to be perpetually in that state. So they, they might very seldom be in normal consciousness. Most of the time, if people are sort of chasing an altered state over and over and over again, it's that they're running away from regular consciousness for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, in that case, if you're in an altered state a lot, certainly certain kinds of exogenous um, altered states, uh, you may only be in two states, the state of the distortion, which is corrected for, and then the state of withdrawal, which is surprisingly uncorrected for until you go back into the, right? And people just bounce between. Yeah. So the kind of chronic friend typically is like, you know, when they finally go to quit the weed and they've been smoking nonstop for eight years or something, uh, it turns out that they're irritable as hell while they adjust to it. And there's a snapback effect. Right. I think that for. If you're spacing these things apart and varying them enough and taking time within regular consciousness to properly digest and integrate them, it's a different story. And then you are sort of able to apply these distortions and corrections in various ways somewhat intentionally, regardless of the state that you're in. You gain a certain amount of um, flexibility and navigational ability, navigational intuition. If you're sort of hammering the same button over and over again, yeah, you'll compensate for it, which means that a lot of the time you're not even really getting the benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you're not um, really, yeah, basically it's like you stop getting the upside for the most part. Uh, and usually that just means you'll chase it harder. Uh, so you're not in regular consciousness and you're not getting the benefit. And this is where it all stops being fun. Oh, so fascinating. Okay, I just realized the time. Are you able to go over like five minutes? Yeah, yeah, I can do like five minutes. Okay, great. So I just wanted to add on one thing, one last thing to that, um, that there have been a lot more deaths associated with psychedelics in the last several years, likely due to what you were talking about, about medical tourism and um, mm -hmm. weekend shamans and all of that. And uh, one of the things that I came to realize, probably like the biggest no shit thing ever, but um, is that mixing medicines is a serious don't do. Right. I mean, even things that are deemed normal, like antidepressants, um, you cannot take them with things like uh, ayahuasca. You need to have a weaning off period of several weeks. And so I think sometimes we can address these drugs or these medicines as if we would when we were teenagers doing them recreationally. You know, we're doing cocaine and it's like, well, yeah, I took a Tylenol earlier. And you're just not really thinking about how these things are mixing. Yeah. Stuff is so powerful. Um that uh, yeah, deaths are becoming more of an issue. And if we want to keep the 
sanctity of this and and help it become legal in a way that's responsible, we need to understand what the parameters are. So really look at working with someone who understands all of this way more than than you probably want to know about. And I would say find work with somebody who's older. You know, I, I know that there's a lot that you can learn in a very short amount of time, but um, I personally would only trust my uh, the facilitation of diving into those depths with somebody that's been in it for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly having um, uh, you know a skilled guide that's embedded is a big difference. You know, we're starting to see a lot of programs around psychedelic psychotherapy um, start to come into existence. I have to admit that I find this a bit odd it's like we've developed all the training programs before legalization happens but okay i guess we're getting the catchers mitt ready Uh, um so and and i've been an advocate for that and i've been involved in sort of you know efforts towards that legalization for those reasons i think it's a powerful thing but you know the training is coming out of nowhere well one of the things that's going to come out of that of course is it's going to be a lot of people who theoretically have a certification mm-hmm. but maybe who don't have a lot of experience so it is the sort of thing where even in that context where theoretically it's a professional situation you really want to shop right you want to do your homework about you know who who you're working with and what that situation is um yeah i mean the death situation I, you know there are two things happening there i think uh, one is of course that you know, the actual rates of danger may be unchanged, but as sheer numeracy increases, you're going to see a lot more deaths. And that typically presents to us as an absolute value. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if there are a thousand people and, you know, one in a thousand dies, then it's one death and we don't really pay attention. But if it's a hundred thousand people and a hundred people die, then we are definitely going to pay attention, despite the fact that it's you know, that it's, that's just a, an issue of scale. Mm. The other thing is, of course, that you do get people being pretty cavalier. Um, uh, when I, I, when I was really interested in Iboga early on after my own experiences and uh, I had sort of tracked it down for personal use and it wasn't very well known, there was a number of people that I knew who were sort of interested in it. And one of the reasons I stopped being involved in helping people do Iboga work um, was an experience that I had where uh, a close friend of mine uh, asked me to sort of consult uh, with somebody who was interested in um, in dealing with an addiction. And I, you know, I met with them and I explained the whole thing and how they could buy it and da 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 I gave them very explicit instructions. And among those instructions was like the, you cannot have anything else in your system because things that mix with the boga can kill you mm-hmm. relatively easily. You know, you mix a bit of opiate. That happens periodically in the sort of indigenous ceremonies in Africa. Uh, so, you know, so I left this guy to do his thing and I met with him the next day just to talk to him a little bit and talk about his experience. And uh, I said, so how did it go? And he said, oh, you know, the insomnia was awful. And I said, yep, the insomnia is awful. Did you, have you been up all night or did you get a little bit of sleep? And he said, oh no, you know, uh, I got through to a certain point and then I said, screw it. And I took a sleeping pill and I said, what? (laughs) And he said, yeah, I just took a sleeping pill. And I said, did you not listen to a thing I said? Like, you're lucky you're not dead. Um, You know, that's not a specific interaction that I was tracking against, but you are lucky you're not dead. Those things could have interacted in a way that could have stopped your breathing pretty readily. Like, how firmly did I need to underline this? And that was a thing that was like, 
yeah, okay. I, you know, to whatever extent I was involved in this sort of informally and pointing people in the direction, mm -mm. Mm. you know, like, no, no, thanks. Not, I'm not interested in being implicated in this kind of thing. That was a very clear situation. I think that kind of stuff happens a lot. And when it comes to drug layering, people are used to this idea, right? It's kind of a fruit salad approach. Um, people are used to, you know, oh, God, I'm tweaking up too high, so I got to bring myself a little bit down with the homemade Elvis. And that does get dangerous. You can escape it a lot of times, but if things line up the wrong way, um, then, you know, you are dead. So, um, well, yeah, yeah. Good, check, good check your interactions. <laughs> yeah, check your interactions, kids. Um <laughs> No, I mean, you should always check your interactions. You should do a lot of homework, but you should also, if you're going to do anything in this area, work with somebody who is experienced and credible because odds are they're going to have a fairly good intuitive sense, but they're also going to do their homework. And, you know, this is one part, of course, having cultural experience and having embodied phenomenological experience. But frankly, it doesn't hurt to have some basic physiological and biological right? Scientific knowledge, like having a sense of, you know, we don't understand these systems perfectly. But if you have a bit of the sense, if you're like, oh, right, these two things, if they mix are likely to give you serotonin syndrome, you do not want that. You know, even that will get you pretty far. So um, again, it's just this note of caution. It's like, this is, this is a treasure almost beyond accounting, mm -hmm. but we have to treat it in a respectful fashion. If we, if we just sort of charge in like, um, you know, angry toddlers wrestling over stuff in the toy bin, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. Mm, love that. Okay. I think that's a good place to stop here. Thank you so much for spending this extra time with me. Um, you have an excellent YouTube channel. I don't think you update it too often, but I don't think that's a problem because the content you have on there is so impactful and so filled with goodness that- Thank you. I'm you about to dump like about 40 hours- of new stuff actually. Yes. Awesome. So, so how can people find you there? Oh, uh, so I, I think you can just, maybe you can YouTube Google, uh, Anderson Todd. So that's uh, first name Anderson, like Anderson Cooper or Anderson Silva, uh, last name Todd, T O D D, um, like T odd. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you just sort of hit that, my YouTube channel is pretty direct. I can, um, I believe Jessica that in my email, you can also in my signature, is the link to my channel. So I don't know if you can post that in the notes on the show or something, but if people want to come check that out and yeah, indeed I'm about to drop uh, like three quarters of the classes that I recorded for this semester are all about to drop kind of all at once. Uh, so mm. like I said, it's like about 40 hours of material altogether. So hopefully people enjoy that. That's great. Yeah. I'll absolutely link to that. Is there anything else? Like, do you work with people individually or are you? Um... I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm in private, I'm in private practice. Uh, so yeah, I maintain private practice, um, both sort of domestically and internationally. Uh, COVID being what it is, I still have not been able to return to in-person sessions. I normally have a consulting office uh, near Queen's Park here in Toronto. Um, but unfortunately, um, uh, as we work our way through the Greek alphabet, uh, it has uh, become uh, difficult uh, to, to do that. Uh, but I've been doing virtual sessions now for like everybody for uh, two and a half years. And that has become a surprisingly good mode. So yeah, so I do see individual clients, um, you know, and for a variety of things, uh, often uh, for the sort of, you know, relatively run of the mill depression and anxiety, but I also do stuff around um, sort of cha change of life, stage of life questions, uh, coming of age questions, which are very interesting to me. Uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff around environmental grief lately, which I think is pretty powerful. I do lots of stuff around sort of spiritual emergency in altered states because I do have some 
obviously some interest there. Uh, and on top of that, it's sort of, you know, like existential therapy work, um, but also lots of depth psych. So I do dream interpretation. So it's a pretty wide field of things that people are, are interested in. But uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anderson's like the cool friend you never had. So <laughs> if he has any spots available, go check him out. Oh, blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you so much. And I'm sorry you guys are dealing with more uh, lockdowns and stuff up there, but it'll free up. I feel like something good will happen next year. Who knows? It's going to be great. It's going to yeah. be great. Or fingers crossed, as I said the other day, I'm holding out for 2022 to have at least one weather event where a snow tornado collides with a fire tornado. That Then I'm good. Yeah, that sounds Dev- great. I don't understand. It's devastating, but it's... <laughs> it, would, it sounds symbolically powerful. Isn't that important? All we need yeah. is, and then we're fine. Yeah. That's my belief. Yeah. Then maybe we can start focusing <laughs> on things that really matter in the world. <laughs> yeah, that would be a nice change of pace. Um, all right, Anderson. You have yourself right, a thanks. great, great uh, vacation, and I'll connect with you soon. Yeah, you too. Uh, have a lovely holiday, and uh, always a pleasure to talk.